evangelists, you can, you can be the Sacramento Kings, uh, that's fine. You're supposed to get good draft picks that in theory are supposed to raise you up the ladder. It, it doesn't seem to work that well, um, but in theory that's what's supposed to happen. It's supposed to sort of balance things out. Right? Our politicians are supposed to be accountable to people who will vote them in or out. That's the theory. That's the understanding, is that if they don't make decisions, good decisions, that ultimately the people will rise up and throw the bums out. Right? Again, doesn't seem to happen all that often. Our managers, our bosses are supposed to be subject to internal reviews and customer complaints and all these kinds of things. Even your marriages, you're supposed to have family powwows and talks around the dinner table that make sure that everybody's voice is heard and nobody's just getting steamrolled. I mean, this is what's supposed to take place. Of course, there's some sort of hierarchy, right? Somebody's got to take care of the checkbook and somebody's got to pay the taxes and somebody's got to decide about what we're going to do next year, what's our five-year plan, all that kind of stuff. But, but there's supposed to be kind of checks and balances where nobody gets absolutely crushed. Supposed to work like rock, paper, scissors. Supposed to have both offense and defense. Miriam doesn't get a lot of decisions um, that go her way, but she's pretty cute, and that's supposed to sort of make up for it, right? And so maybe, I don't know where you are, maybe you're paper, <laughs> right? Maybe you're paper just kind of getting shredded, and, and any victory really is a pretty hollow victory. It's like, well, I, I covered the rock, I guess. Rock wore me as a hat, big deal. Um, and, and, but really, at the end of the day, you just end up feeling like you've been cut to ribbons. Or maybe, maybe you're the scissors. Maybe you're somewhere in between, and you're both destroying somebody, but you're also getting pretty wrecked pretty bad on the other side, too, right? Maybe, maybe you're the rock, <laughs> um, who basically does a lot of smashing and doesn't do um, a whole lot of getting smashed. Maybe you're so high up the ladder that nothing can really hurt you and you just kind of throw your weight around. Well, part of the challenge with this text, with the situation that Zechariah is in, that he's prophesying into the middle of, is this problem of there's supposed to be some sort of balance, but the, the, the people of God who have been wicked, they have then been smashed on some level, right? They've been punished. Um, and now, in theory, they're coming back from the punishment, but coming back doesn't actually seem all that good. Here they are coming back from Babylon, and yet the life that they're coming back into still seems really hard and really kind of miserable. Because right when they had, they had the backing of the king, the previous king, Cyrus, and then of course regimes change, and you can't just do what the other guy did, that would be weak, right? So here's Darius, or Darius, the new king, who pulls back his permission, pulls back even his material support for the people to build the temple. And they're just not sure what they're gonna do. It doesn't seem fair. The world, again, is just sort of slanted against them. And here they've been fasting, they've been confessing, they've been doing, they feel like, all of the stuff that God asked them to do, and yet, again, they're just sort of stuck. They're not getting anywhere. It doesn't matter how hard they try, that savings account doesn't seem to be growing. <laughs> it doesn't matter how much effort they put in, it doesn't, the world seems 
to be working. And so Zechariah gets this second vision. And mind you, all eight of these visions, they all happen on the same night, actually, from what we can tell in the text. A heck of a night for Zechariah. <laughs> but he gets this second vision, which is these four horns that come up against the people of Israel. And it says, these are the horns that scattered them. Um, horns in Scripture, if, if you don't know, if you read it in the Psalms all the time, it shows up in the book of Revelation, it shows up all through the Old Testament. Um, horns are kind of this agricultural image of strength, right? So horns are usually the strongest animals, your bulls, your rhinoceroses, your unicorns, all that kind of thing. And to, <laughs> to lift up, right? I didn't think it was that funny, but I'm glad, Rosa, I'm glad it worked, worked for you. Okay, so... <laughs> To lift up the horn, right, is to show your strength. It's like the bull who kind of has these horns, and he's, he's coming up against you. You don't want that horn coming up towards you, right? So when they lift up their horns, they're exercising their strength in the world. They're flexing their muscles. And God tells Zechariah about these four horns, whether that is this, the horn of Babylon, the empire of Babylon, or the empire of Assyria, or of Egypt. We don't know exactly why there's four there's probably four because there's four corners of the earth in the way they thought about it, which just means there's strength everywhere. And everywhere you go, you're going to find some sort of strength that is lifting up its power against you, right? You're again, you're on the pointy end of that horn. You're on the pointy end of that missile, right? That you're experiencing somebody else's exercise or demonstration of strength. But we know in Scripture that the horns were used by God, that God actually let Assyria come in and do what they did. God allowed Babylon to come in and do what they did. God used Egypt as a part of his plan. So we're in kind of this strange position. Are the horns on God's side or are they not? Because <laughs> if you're God's people, you can, you can say like, yeah, I deserve some punishment. But now you're in this place where you're thinking, well, I've done my time. Like, I've gone to time out, and I'm back, and the horns are still coming up against me. They're still bringing their strength against me. It's still not working for me, even though God has given me these words, comfort, comfort, says Isaiah in chapter 40, right? Comfort, comfort, my people. We're hearing these words of comfort, and yet we're not seeing it. So I'm working on this image here. Let's see. Can we go to the next slide? Um, that the sinners, <laughs> right? Sinners are paper. <laughs> sinners are paper. That's an that's a Adam and Eve reference there, the apple. Okay. The sinners are paper, they're getting shredded. They don't actually do very much damage to anybody. And if the sinners are paper, then the horns become scissors. Okay, so here come the scissors shredding up that paper. And you can see it in our world. It doesn't often feel like there's a check on the power that God allows to bring judgment. You see it in our politicians, <laughs> right? Not to be overly relevant, but imagine, just, just imagine, a politician who used his or her Authority and power to enrich themselves while promising to do what God's people wanted them to do. So he kind of goes and does this one or two things, but meanwhile, most of his time and energy is spent just doing stuff that he wants to do. 
Hard to imagine that, I know. Or imagine a politician who uses their faith, uses their faith as a talking point. Meanwhile, embracing the very core ethical um, evil that their faith condemns. Imagine a politician doing either of those things. Well, Zechariah gives us an image of what happens to those who place themselves in that situation. He says it's a basket. More precisely, it's an ephah basket, which is a unit of measurement. So it's, it's about the size of a five-gallon bucket, Okay, one of these ephah baskets. So in his vision, a whole woman fits in here, right? I, I couldn't even really get a two-year-old in there. Um, but God fits a whole woman into this ephah basket, okay? An ephah, it, it would have been like a bushel, okay? You, you kind of, we probably don't know how big a bushel actually was, uh, but we know that it's a unit of measurement that's sort of standard, right? Okay, so then on top of that ephah basket goes not a trash can lid. I did actually wash this in the sink before I put it on my daughter's face, okay? Um, just so you know. But goes a lid, but that lid, again, it says it's a leaden cover. It's not just a random lead circle. It was probably a talent, okay? A big unit of measurement that would have been used on a regular basis. So here is God taking this woman who is wickedness, he says, pushing her down into this ephah basket and cramming her in there with this talent of lead. Remember the parable of the talents where the guy gives his servants all these talents? Yeah, that's the same kind of, that's the amount of weight that we're talking about. It's that you can't push up a talent of lead off of your head. Okay, so she is, she's crammed down in there. Why an ephah? And why a talent? Well, in part, what God is saying to Zechariah is that the sin that, the thing that is carrying your wickedness, the thing that is carrying your sin is the weights and measures. It's the practices of the marketplace. It's very common for people to have two different ephah baskets and two different talents, one for buying and one for selling. Right? When you're buying, you want the big ephah basket. When you're selling, you want the little one. Same with the talent. Right? They didn't have standard measures off somewhere measured with computers and nuclear weights and atoms and all that kind of stuff. You, they cheated each other all the time. In fact, I think we all know what, when we use the word abomination, our minds all go to one place in the Old Testament, but you want to know the truth? God calls unequal weights and measures and abomination more in the law than he does anything else. People who would cheat their brother, cheat their sister especially, but who would even cheat the stranger or the alien in their land, who was easy pickings because they had nobody to defend them. So here is their wickedness getting carried off in an ephah basket and covered over by a talent of lead. God's saying, look, your wickedness is tied to the way that you've treated each other economically. It's tied to your marketplace practices. 
And maybe you're a buyer and a seller and you have that temptation. Or maybe you pay taxes or don't pay taxes and have that temptation. Maybe you go to an office and, I don't know, there's just a stack of post-it notes and paper clips and pens, all, all kinds of stuff just sitting there. Like, why not? I need post-it notes and paper clips at home. It's not that big of a deal, right? I mean, maybe it goes down to that kind of small of a thing, or maybe you're tempted to allow those who are close to you, those who are in your family unit, your spouse, your kids, your siblings, to just believe something that's not quite true. Right? It would just be really hard to tell the truth. It would be really hard to be open with them about that thing that I did, and I'm going to fix it anyway. We have a tendency to do this exact thing. We have a tendency to say we are paper. And because we're paper and everybody's shredding us and our victories are empty, we can let ourselves off the hook. It's only fair. It's only just. It's only right. I've been wronged my whole life. It's not that big of a deal for me to do a little wronging. truth is, when we do that, we become the woman in the basket. And when we continue to do that, it kills part of us. And we become a little bit more the woman in the basket. And unrepented and undealt with, those actions put us so far into that basket, and they put that weight so far down onto our head that those women come with their stork wings. And that's weird, but we're not going to talk about it this morning. You can call me. I'll, I've I would love to talk about all these visions, but I just don't have time. There's some really weird images. <laughs> and they pick her up, <laughs> and they take her away. And it says they build a house for her in Shinar. That's Babylon. Okay. Not that, you know, next to Chuck and Sharon back there is Shinar, but um, where we took the bucket. They take her all the way to Babylon. That's where they built the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, the plains of Shinar. She goes far, 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 far away. When we live like that, we become that woman. Now, you may think that you've never seen this, right? But it's all through Scripture. I mean, it's in the prodigal son. The prodigal son who takes what his father gives him, and he, he goes off to a far country, and he squanders it on wild living. He lives prodigally, right? He just throws it away, and he ends up there's a famine in the land, and he hasn't saved anything, so he has to work, and the work that he can find is feeding pigs. You see, God allowing all this stuff to crash in, the horns that come up, sometimes it's God allowing the pain that forces the prodigal son into the truth. This is my illusions about who I am, my illusions about the world. Those dogs aren't going to hunt. They're not working anymore. They worked for a little bit, but I don't have the padding anymore, and they're no longer working. I don't know what the pain has been that has forced you into the truth. Well, some of you I do know. But I, most of you, I don't know all the pain that has forced you into the truth. It might be losing a job. It might be a divorce. It might be somebody saying, this is really the line, and you can't cross this line. Maybe for you, the pain that finally forced you into the truth was those intrusive thoughts that you could not get rid of and you couldn't shut up and you thought, maybe if I could just do one more thing, that stuff will go away. But the truth is, you do the one more thing and they're still there. It's still present. What's the pain 
that's forced you into the truth? What's your basket? What's your leaden lid? Well, the second vision is your, your center, your horns. Got one more slide here. In the second vision, God brings something against the horns. He brings a hammer. Right? These four horns come up. And we know that the horns destroy. We know that the horns take life. God instead unleashes these craftsmen with their tools. And it's significant that there are four craftsmen. God meets their power exactly. God meets their authority exactly. He sends out these craftsmen against the horns, and the horns are terrified. The horns are terrified because they know they can't stand up against the hammers. They know they can't stand up against the tools of the craftsmen. They know that these artisans who are going to come against them see those horns not as something threatening, not as something that's going to take them down, but as raw material. As raw material to be crafted into something beautiful. The horn destroys. But the hammer can do one of two things. It can grind them into dust or it can redeem and restore those horns. I feel kind of silly. I didn't bring a Bible up here with me today. Let that be a lesson to you. <laughs> but Revelation 21 all the way down in verse 26. John, this is the second to last chapter of the Bible. This is the conclusion, right? This is the big finale. This is all of Scripture, like caught up in one thing and going, man, this is what we've been aiming for this whole time. And John, the revelator, says that this is what he saw. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. That's going to be great. <laughs> There's no need to build a church because God is with his people. And the city had no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. The kings of the earth, the horns of the earth, will bring their glory into the new Jerusalem. The gates are not going to shut because there's going to be economic trade <laughs> between the kings of the earth and the king of, of the universe who has restored all things. That when, so here's what's happening. When the kings of the earth are in their right place, they're still producing good things. They're still producing culture. Hollywood still exists. Movies get made. Books get written. Okay? But all of that stuff, rather than it being about the glory of the author or the glory of the actors or the glory of the production company, all of that stuff goes to the glory of God. Every good thing that is made in this world 
flows uphill to the king, to the lamb who is on the throne. All the kings of the earth bring their glory into it. The horn destroys, but the hammer redeems. The hammer restores. We have one of our six core values here at Cordova that we don't talk about enough. One of them is lifting up all things praiseworthy. That's what this is about. That value is saying we look at not just we don't just look in these walls. We look out into the world and we're saying where are there good and beautiful and true things happening in the world and how can we point people to them so that through those good, true and beautiful things they will ultimately be pointed to the one who is the source of all things that are good, true and beautiful. You see? Like we said last week, the church can't just huddle up and say, we're going to make church culture and it's going to be so good and it's going to be awesome because we're going to copy everything that's out there. We need to bring the glory of the kings into the city and allow it to be redeemed, allow it to serve the one who makes all things good. See, we Christians are bold and courageous and every truly good thing ends up bringing glory to God. And so what that means is that all the bad stuff, all the bad stuff, ultimately God can restore and redeem. Israel's sin and rebellion and brokenness, God can use it to show that he is merciful and faithful and restorative. The storm that we live in the middle of in the gospel reading that I totally forgot to read at the beginning of this, God can take that storm and show that he is a God of peace and calm. The cancer that ravages people's bodies, God can show that he is a God of healing, not only of sickness and illness, but in the midst of sickness and illness. How many of us don't ever do the things we're really supposed to do until we don't have any time left? God can use that to restore relationships, to cause people to go to one another, to need one another who have tried to be invulnerable their whole lives. He can take your suffering, your pain, your life in the pig pen, your wanting to fill your stomach with the slop. God can and desires to take all of that and to use it to his glory, to turn it into a story that enables you to be empathetic, caring, loving, and passionate about seeing the image of God in other people. He takes our rock bottom and our addictions and he turns them into stories of his victory. You see, he takes those horns and he redeems them and he makes them about his goodness. Anybody know? I mean, I know we know what Jesus did like the three years that he, during his ministry, right? Walked around, healed some people, taught some things, okay? Ended up on a cross. Talk about that in a second. But what was his job? Jesus was a craftsman. He was a carpenter, yeah, I know, but the word actually just means craftsman. He was just as likely a stonemason as he was a craft who actually carved and shaped stones into steps and, and, and stone houses as he was somebody who worked with wood. In fact, Jesus could probably do it all. 
He was like the other craftsmen who are around Nazareth in the first century. That area was actually kind of booming economically. There was a lot of building going, a lot of Roman investment in that part of the world. And Jesus was probably out with his dad on the cart, pulling the tools and the hammers around, taking raw material and turning it into something beautiful and useful. And I just can't get that image out of my head that Jesus himself is the craftsman who wants to take your raw material, who wants to take your wood and stone and your horn, and he wants to shape it and redeem it and restore it into the thing that ultimately would bring him glory no matter how much shame you think is in it. Right? No matter how much sin or disgraceful stuff you think is in it, that's the life that God wants. You are the material that God wants. But to be that material, we've got to let him work with us. Because the other option is that we get ground into dust. The other thing that hammer can do is to judge and grind us into nothing. We've got to submit. We've got to soften ourselves. No one knows that better than Jesus. You know, in our world, Rome is our model. We don't notice it out here in the West, but if you go back to the East Coast and you go to Washington and you walk into those buildings, there are not early Christian frescoes that are painted on the wall. <laughs> the things that are painted on the wall of the Capitol building in Washington, D.C., even just the Capitol building downtown, they're imitations of Greek and Roman painting and art and statuary. Rome is our model for our legal system and our political system, for good or for bad. I'm not judging that. It just is. But Rome had a particular thing that they used, a thing that they used as their missile, as the pointy end of their spear, and that would strike terror in the heart of every Roman citizen and everyone who came even into contact with Rome on the edges of the empire. It was the cross. And they would take that cross and they would nail people to it and they would hang them up by the side of the road intentionally. They were put at the crossroads so that everybody who was going by would see and would know that this is what happens when you mess with Rome. This is what happens if you rebel against the empire. You get pinned to a cross and hung up in the air. And you don't get a merciful spear, you know, stabbed into your side to make sure that you're dead. You get left to die of exposure. That's what the cross is about. It's a brutal, terrible instrument of death and terror and fear. I mean, it's a drone strike that you don't see coming. It's the electric chair. It's it's all of those things rolled up into one. So why do we put it on our table and on our walls and hang it around our necks. We do it because our God is a craftsman who takes terror and horns and strength and power that wants to rise up against them and he uses them to bring life. And on God's trophy wall in heaven where all the glory of the kings is going to come in, at the very top is the trophy that Rome tried to wield In fact, that Satan tried to wield against God. Cross. An ugly, splintered and broken and cursed cross. God took that curse 
and made it into a blessing. He took that death and he made it life. He took that abyss and he made it into hope. It's really as simple as rock, paper, scissors. Or the new game I'm going to play, Sinner Horn Hammer, right? <laughs> because the question is, go one more slide here. One more slide, sorry. Forgot I, yeah. The question is, how are you going to choose mercy in all of this? As you, as you go out from this place, how are you going to bring the impact of God's mercy on your life, the impact of God's redemption on your life to the people who are around you who need that forgiveness? Maybe the person you actually need to start forgiving is yourself today. Maybe you haven't actually forgiven yourself for some things that you've done or that you think you've done. I mean, it's Father's Day. You could start with your dad. Most of us probably have something there. <laughs> right? Maybe it's your neighbor. Maybe it's a roommate or a spouse. Maybe the person you need to forgive is God. Maybe you're so sick of being paper cut up and shredded on the ground. But you've never really forgiven God for that. And you need to at least say the words, Lord, would you soften my heart? Would you change my approach? Would you enable me to be healed from this brokenness? God ultimately is the only one who can do it. The horns of this world will just keep rising up until we put ourselves in his hands. I say, Lord, I want to be yours. Make me whatever it takes for me to be a part of your glory. Um, we're going to play a, a song for um, communion encourage you to hum along with it, sing with it, whatever, it's on, it's on the video here. I'm going to be down here by the drum set. <laughs> um, if you would like to pray today, if you want to pray by yourself, feel free to come on this side. If you come over here, I'm going to assume you want somebody to pray with you, okay? Um, and I, I'd love to pray with you. I'd love to encourage you um, and, and to be a part of even just a tiny part of this process, hopefully, of, of us all opening our hearts to the, the good, the good craftsman, Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, as we come to the table this morning, Lord, um, we bring all of who we are because we know that we are hardened and broken. We know that in so many ways we've messed it up. But I want to ask, Lord Jesus, that as we come to receive this offering, that we wouldn't let the fact that we've been broken and poured out get in the way of the glory that you desire to show in us and through us, through our brokenness. God, I pray that anybody here who's in need of healing today would be bold enough to extend an arm, to extend the question to somebody close to them. We know that we don't do this ever by ourselves. So we're asking for your help, for your hope, in Jesus' name.